Okay. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report on Progressive News Network. We are here on Blog Talk Radio. My name is Janine Moloff, and I am the producer, host, and news director. Um, last week, we talked about the, uh, the disastrous train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. And we mentioned how there was some major negligence the, on the part of the uh, railway and also on the part of our government. No shock there, right? Today, we're going to go into it from a slightly different angle. So this is the Environmental Justice Report. Uh, the headline is East Palestine Bomb Train. That's what I'm calling it, a bomb train, caused by planned negligence. You could call it premeditated negligence. <clears throat> Excuse me, whatever you want to call it. But before we get into that, uh, our first story was actually uh, sent in by our founder, Rick Spiesack, and it's a talk given by two experts and one toxicologist on the um, Love Canal disaster, and it partially deals with some strategies, how can we form strategies to fight off other environmental bombs and other issues of, you know, negligence. <clears throat> now, as we get into, after that story, we're going to get into the East Palestine situation. And what I wrote in the advert was the East Palestine bomb train, because it was a bomb, I don't know how else you could call it, was caused by planned negligence. This negligence was signed off on by both Democrats and Republicans. And as I said a minute ago, last week I discussed how our nation's freight trains used braking systems that were that dated back to the Civil War, more specifically braking systems created in 1868. That's, what, two, three years after the end of the Civil War? There is a better braking system that's available, but the railroads have actively fought this much-needed safety feature as it, you know, interferes with unbridled profiteering and, well, of course, recently new stock buybacks. The fact is the East Palestine disaster didn't just happen. It was inevitably caused by corporate negligence and uh, political influence peddling. And I don't care what Citizens United has to say. Citizens United, be damned. It's influence peddling, pure and simple. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Of course, we're going to have our jackass of the week. And this week is a very special jackass because this person not only is the jackass of the week, but they also are just a despicable person all around. So um, we're going to just move right into this. This is a talk given by, I believe it's Louise Gibbs, who's the activist. Uh, this was this talk was given on the 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day, um, and this particular talk highlights the papers of, as from what I was reading here, of environmental activist Lois Gibbs, um, and so Lois Marie Gibbs, what, uh, an environmental activist and organizer, formed the Love Canal Homeowners Association. Uh, after she discovered that her entire neighborhood of Love Canal, you know, in Niagara Falls, New York, had been built on a toxic waste dump. And, you know, Gibbs was concerned because 
her children's health in the late about her children's health in the late 70s. Um, and she had read newspaper accounts of a landfill in Love Canal, and then she noticed the pattern of health issues just within her own neighborhood. And so she began to investigate the problem, and she discovered, among other things, that a field next to the neighborhood's elementary school and homes had been a dumping ground for some 20,000 tons of toxic chemicals. Now, this was in the 70s. This is before Congress passed the CERCLA um, law, which is also known as the Superfund Act. CERCLA is the acronym that stands for the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act of 1980. Um, let's face it, Superfund's been weakened ever since. Um, so I, I think with no further ado, I'm just going to get into this particular talk that Rick found for us. Here we go. Thank you all for coming. We appreciate you being here. Uh, I'm going to keep this as brief as possible to give you all and our guest speakers as much time as possible. Um, and I've been told that you all hear me talk too much as it is. So um, give a little story here. When Hope was in its infancy, we knew we were going we to need help. So we started reaching out to different organizations across the country. The very first positive response we received was from Teresa at CHEJ, which is the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. Um, Teresa has mentored us since that day. She's introduced us to valuable contacts. She's advised us. She's celebrated with us. And she's even cried with us. CHEJ has also helped fund us through grants. I can say without a doubt that if it wasn't for CHEJ, Hope for Bristol would not have been able to achieve the victories we have today. So tonight, we are blessed to have the founder of CHEJ here to talk to us, to listen to us, and to help us. In 1981, to ensure that no other community would have to face a toxic health threat alone, Lois founded the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. Since then, CHEJ has helped more than 15,000 groups, comprising roughly two and a quarter million people, successfully fight environmental health threats across the country. Lois is inspirational, motivational, and she is, in her own words, still mad as hell. Please welcome Lois Gibbs. Talk about learning from Love Canal. Because the learning from Love Canal is really important for you all uh, in your struggle here to find relief from this nasty landfill, or I guess it's landfills, so there's three of them there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I come from Niagara Falls, New York. I'm now, I'm now a resident and have been for 40-some years of the Commonwealth of Virginia, so I will be sure on my side of the, of the state line, I'll, I'm going to beat them up for you. Oh, I'll sign your petitions and write the letters and do what i got to do. I'm happy to do so as a, as a resident and a taxpayer. Um, and so when I moved into Love Canal, I did not know there was a landfill there. And then, you know, like five people have said to me today as they walk up, I didn't know there was a landfill there. Like, I didn't know that. How many people knew there was a landfill when you bought your house? Knew, not didn't know, see? Look at how few hands are in this, right? We are victims of this by no fault of our own. We bought our homes. We bought our American dream, right? We're going to raise our families. We're going to, you know, take care of mom. What, what, 
and I was the same way. At 27, I bought my first house and I bought my first American dream and I was so excited because I had everything at 27. I had everything. I had a husband who was gainfully employed. I had a white picket fence. I had HBO. It was big back then. Didn't have the internet and all that stuff. And I had a healthy baby boy very soon after being married. And 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 Michael, you know, we, we moved to Niagara Falls, we moved to this new home, and Michael at that time was, was four years old, almost five. And when we when we moved in, all of a sudden he started getting sick, and I'm like, why is my son getting sick? And I knew, I knew first of all, that was probably my husband's bad genes. So I looked at his family really close. And it wasn't. He was okay. He was getting, he got asthma. He developed epilepsy where he would have grandma seizures, fall on the floor, and there's nothing you can do but wait it out. He developed a liver problem, a urinary tract problem, with one thing after the other. And the pediatrician said, I don't know, Lois. I don't know, I don't know what is wrong with your son. I think that God gave you him because you're a good mother. And so you would take care of it. I'm like, no, God gave me a healthy baby. Something else made my healthy baby sick. I carried my second child, Melissa, at Love Canal. And she was, she was born perfectly healthy, a little smaller than she should have been, but perfectly healthy. And then after a short period of time, Melissa, too, got sick. So on Friday, she was three years old. On Friday, she had bruises on her body. On Saturday, the bruises were... Uh, more, and by Sunday her entire body was covered with lots of blue marks. And I'm like, what is going on? So I took her to the pediatrician, and he said, you know, I'm going to take a blood sample and send you home, because back then it took a little longer for this stuff. Uh, and I'll call you later and ask him, no, what's the result? And so he took the blood sample, and he called me in the afternoon and said, Mrs. Gibbs, I believe your daughter has leukemia. Here's what I need for you to do. I need you to put her in your car. Do not put a seat harness on her. Carefully drive her to Buffalo Children's Hospital where they will do a test to determine whether or not she has leukemia. So I put my daughter in the car. I did not put a seat harness on her. I took her all the way to the hospital, promised her an ice cream cone that she didn't wiggle. And she didn't, and she got one. And when we got there, they put me in this makeshift sort of emergency room, and they said, so Mrs. Gibbs, here's what we have to do. Because of your daughter's blood count, we can't give her heavy anesthetic. So what I need for you to do is hold her down and calm her down while we perform this procedure. And the procedure was to take a bone marrow sample. So they put a needle into her hip and went through some bone marrow to look at to see whether or not she has leukemia. And so I went in there and I'm like, okay, I'm her mom, I can do this, right? And, and she's crying and she's screeching at the top of her lungs and her nose is bleeding and the blood vessels under her skin and her face are breaking. And there's blood everywhere and I just couldn't do it. I walked out of there, stood on the other side of the door and listened to my daughter say, Mama, please, screaming, I'll be good, I promise. I tell you this story not because my children suffered more than others, they didn't. My children survived. I tell you this story because while this was happening to Melissa and Michael, my children, my neighbor's children, and children throughout the community, 
the city of Niagara Falls, the state of New York, and the federal EPA all know we are being poisoned. Just like here today, they all know you're being poisoned. They knew it. And why didn't they do anything about it? Well, they did this thing they called the cost-benefit analysis. How much would it cost to fix Love Canal, to keep the chemicals from moving underground like they are here, seeping into our basements, seeping into our bodies and our children's bodies? How much would it cost? And at that time, in 1976 dollars, it was about $20 million. And then they said, in the cost-benefit analysis, who would benefit? And they looked at our families. My husband worked at Goodyear Chemical. He was a chemical operator. And he made $10,000 a year. The vast majority of my neighbors were all, they worked in the chemical industry in Niagara Falls. And they all made around $10,000 a year. And so when you do a cost-benefit analysis, I looked at my husband was worth $10,000 a year. And my son, Michael, he was worth $10,000 plus an inflation factor because they assumed he'll follow his steady footsteps. I did not work outside the household, so I was worth nothing. My daughter, who was likely to follow in my footsteps, was worth nothing. The bottom line is, all of the agencies responsible for our family's health and well-being, agencies we pay taxes, we pay salaries, made a decision, a conscious decision, that it was okay to poison us. That it was okay because we were not rich people. And because on the one side of Love Canal, we had a lot of African-American families in Griffin Manor. And they had to have five children to qualify for that housing. Think about how many children are there. 240 units, five children per unit, do the math. And they allowed them to be poisoned because they were poor too and they were black. In today's world, not a whole lot has changed. The thing that I learned from Love Canal is that these decisions about whether you get poisoned or not are not decisions of medical or science. These are decisions of money. Who is going to pay? Who is going to pay to fix the problem? And in this case, the Commonwealth of Virginia is responsible and the Commonwealth of Virginia should pay. However, while you're waiting for the Commonwealth to step up to the plate, Bristol, Tennessee also has to protect their citizens and go after the Commonwealth of Virginia to reimburse all the taxpayers. No one in Tennessee should have to pay the cost of fixing this problem. So that was the first lesson I learned. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a working blue-collar community. My daddy was a bricklayer. Uh, my mama had six kids. We're Irish Catholic. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we were always taught that if you, there was something wrong, you know, if you, if you worked hard and you paid your dues, and, you know, that you would be protected. And it's just not so. The second lesson I learned, which I was shocked at too, and, and you know, I'm, I'm an incredibly naive human being, um, is I thought all we have to do is prove, what we have to do is prove that we are sick 
And if we can prove that we are sick, then they have to do something. Even if they don't want to do something, they have to do something, right? Yeah. How many in this room think that that's true? Yeah. Pretty many. So we want us to prove that we were sick. And we did a health service. And we looked at all of the families who lived in the 10 block area. This is a more urban area than you all are living in. But a 10 block area around the, the dump site. And we found that in that area, in, that in our community, 56% of our children were born with birth defects. Over half our children had double rows of teeth, extra fingers, extra toes, or were mentally retarded. During the study period, we found 22 women were pregnant and only four normal babies were born. The rest of those pregnancies ended in miscarriages, stillborn babies, or birth-defected children. <laughs> we found all these other diseases, you know, people who had bloody noses, people who had migraines, people who had all of these other problems. And we presented it to the state and we said, here is the evidence. You can, I mean, obviously we're not scientists, we're, 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 you know, homemakers for the most part, but they had all the data, they could verify our data, we couldn't, we couldn't do that, we weren't qualified. And we said, here's the science, look at this, this is what's happening to our families, you have to do something. And they looked at it, and they said, it's useless housewife data collected by people with a vested interest in the outcome. How come, how come the Commonwealth of Virginia doesn't have a vested interest in the outcome here? Right? How come? How come the chemical companies that were responsible for Love Canal didn't have a vested interest? How come it's only the citizens who are somehow put in question because we have a vested interest? Excuse me, everybody has a vested interest in the outcome, whether you're paying the bill or receiving the benefit. So we decided we had to turn up the heat, so we turned up the heat on our elected officials to force the Department of Health, New York State Department of Health, to do a health study in our community to show that, because we knew if we could prove it, we were out, we were, we were going to be saved, right? So New York State came and they did a health study and they called me up and said, we're going to present our health study results to you all and can you, you know, put the word out on the street and we'll have a meeting, blah, blah, blah. Yes. She said, oh, and Lois, you'll be surprised. We found the same results as you did. Duh. <laughs> what do you think? We're lying to you? Like, really? So they held a meeting, big auditorium. All of our folks were there. We never, we never turned out less than 500 people. All our folks were there. And the health department went on to talk about their study. They talked about how they did it, you know, the, all, the, all the sort of science stuff in the background. And then they said, and here is what we found. We found that 56% of the children in Love Canal were born with birth defects. And we were just excited. I know it sounds really sick, but we were really excited because we thought, now this is the answer. They also said they found that there were pregnant women who had outcomes that were miscarriages, stillborns, and birth, um, uh, yeah, birth defected children like we found too. And so when they were done, they, they, they gave us these results and they said, but, we do not believe that these problems are related to the 20,000 tons of chemicals buried in the center of the community. I'm like, what? We do not believe it. We believe it's a random clustering of genetically defective people. Oh, God. 
Anybody who's ever taken steps knows that's possible. Likely? No. But totally possible, right? Science is really important. We won public support because we could show the public that 56% of our children were born with birth defects. And people said, that's not right. And I'll sign your petition, or I'll go lobby for you, or I'll stand on the street corner and carry a sign, or I'll get my union to do a letter, or I'll get my union to give you some financial support for your work. So the science is really important, but it's important not to convince those in charge. It's important to convince the public that you're right. And to get that public support in order to win the fight. It's a big fight. It's an expensive fight. So science is important as a tool, but it is not the answer. So the other thing I wanted to share with you is in my 40 years, I have traveled to dozens of sites like this, dozens of them, where they have a burning landfill, which you have here, even though they say they're not sure. It's burning, it's on fire, it's underground. Every time they put a well in, they're feeding the fire. They're feeding the oxygen to the fire. To your basement, into uh, your backyard, your restaurants, your places of business. Those things are all connected. Some of the cases where people didn't understand what was going on, I'm going to give you two really good examples. One is in um, Georgia. Savannah, no, not Savannah. Augusta. Augusta. Augusta, thank you. Augusta, Georgia. This is Stephen Lester. He works with me. <laughs> He's going to speak next. So one is in Augusta, Georgia. And a, a, a woman came home from the hospital. She had some minor surgery. Her daughter was bringing her home and took her into her house and said, oh, it smells like gas in here. And so they called the gas company. The gas company came out and said, it's gas, but it's not our gas. Like, what do you mean? And they started testing, the, the gas company started testing homes around her home and found that many of the homes had gas in them, methane gas, which is almost the same as natural gas, guys. It's not, it's not a whole lot different. And what they found was the levels were so high in this home that they actually shut down the neighborhood and told everyone they had to leave and they had two hours to do it and they could not come back. Wow. They could not come back because their homes could explode. And everything they know and love and, and worked their whole life for were in those homes. They ended up having to evacuate that community permanently. There was no way that people could come back into the homes. And they ended up, in this case, they ended up building homes for these folks. So they had a three-bedroom ranch, they got a three-bedroom ranch. If they had a three-bedroom bricks, they got a three-bedroom they, they just built these homes for folks in different places. But those homes could have blown up. Just a spark from their heater could have blown up and killed people. That's what you have here. Which homes? You don't know. Because nobody's doing any testing. Because nobody gives a hoot. Well, that's not true. The Bristol, Tennessee side, city council and mayor give a hoot. So I, I take that back. But it's not on their property. So they, you know, they have a limit of what they can do. 
that you know the other the other site was a site in um, Bridgeton, uh, St. Louis, and we were working with that group for at least ten years. So they have what they call an underground smoldering event. What the hell is an underground smoldering event? <laughs> it's a fire. It's a fire. You don't have odors, girl. You have gas. You have toxic emissions. It's not odors. Never use their language. Their language is intended to belittle the problem and the risk. Never use their language. So this underground smoldering fire was burning through, and this one was owned by a property, a, a, a private company, Republic Services. So Republic Services said, oh, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it. We know how to fix it. Okay, so what are you going to do? So what they ended up doing is they offered evacuation for the whole one mile radius around the landfill. So you took the center of the landfill and you did one mile. Drew a circle and all those people could, be, could move to a hotel or a motel or you know, rent a condo, whatever, for a period of time and the Republic would pay for it. And they would pay for your food and they would pay for all the other stuff associated with it. If you didn't want to move, you could stay there and smell the gas if you wanted. It's America, you're allowed to do it. And we'll give you $300 for the inconvenience. And then they went about to try and put out the fire and get rid of the emissions. The emissions there were so bad, they're just like here, because we went out around your landfill today. They're so bad, you walk out and you see my eyes are still glassy. I look like I'm on drugs, honest to God. All I've had was iced tea. It's the closest thing to a drug today is the caffeine. You go out in their, in their uh, community, your eyes tear. You can't catch your breath. Your skin itches or burns. It's horrible. So they're going to try to fix this problem. And they're going to put a huge canvas kind of thing covering over the top of it. A membrane is what they call it. But unlike what they're trying to do here, they actually move the people before they put the hole in the ground. That added oxygen to the fire that caused more emissions into your community, right? So they, they evacuated all the folks who wanted to leave or had diseases and needed to leave. And then they went to put this thing on and they put it on the whole site. And they were very proud of themselves, and they should be, because they tried really hard to put it out. And that, you know, it wasn't a bad thing what they were trying to do. The engineers all said this will work. And they put it on, and it lasted maybe a couple months and all of a sudden the fire was still there, it was still burning, and the top would collapse down. But when it collapsed down, because it would burn, it's like charcoal, right, it's like wood, it collapses, it condenses, then the cover would fall in and rip. And in the middle of the site somewhere, you would have this bellowing smoke coming out. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a short-term fix. What you have here is gonna take decades to fix. It's going to take decades to put out. That doesn't mean you have to come to meetings for decades. What you need to do is come to meetings and bring a friend next time until you get the commitment to do it right. And the commitment is for the Commonwealth of Virginia to do it right. And your city fathers and mothers have to help you get that. But that is the only way you're going to be able to live in your home. I don't. I don't know, I mean, I, I heard this lovely woman, where is she? Oh, there you are. Don, right? Don? Yes, Nan, sorry. 
One of the things that, that struck me in reading the, the expert panel report, some of you might recall that from, from last March, was the fact that they were all engineers who were on that group. There wasn't a health scientist among them. So all the work they did to look at the data about what's going on up at the landfill didn't include anybody who could bring to the table the question of, well, how is this affecting people's health? Now, that wasn't their charge. That wasn't what the state of Virginia, I guess, wanted to learn from them, so they never got that. But, um, but that, to me, is something that was missing from that report. Because what's happening to the folks who are in this room and both people who live in this neighborhood is not an engineering question, it's a health question, it's a biological question. So from what I learned about the canal, starting at Love Canal, but over these last 40 years, is that the way we address and look at science questions or health questions is not by looking at what health problems people cause, but we look at risk. And so, for example, there was an analysis done of the benzene reading, some of the other chemicals coming off the, that landfill uh, over a year ago. And that analysis was a typical risk analysis that looked at one chemical when you're exposed <laughs> one time and, and comparing it to these standards or these guidelines. These guidelines are not health-based. They're these risk-based and they're driven by a single chemical, you being exposed to that one chemical one time, and that one time is like today. It's not like the last two months or the last year or however long you're exposed to these chemicals. And it primarily looks at one health outcome, usually cancer if that's what's called, but if it's not, it's something else. One health outcome, but benzene doesn't just cause leukemia, it can cause central nervous system problems, it can damage your liver, it can cause all kinds of blood discretion. It's much more than just a carcinogen. So when these risk analysis are done, they're not capable of answering the questions that people in these communities, people here in Bristol, and people in the communities that I've worked with for these four years, the questions on the table can't be answered. And that question is very simple. Are these exposures going to hurt me, hurt my kids, hurt my family, hurt my health? And and going back to something that happened to me at Love Canal, I sat in a room with a small handful of people, and I was hired for the state of New York. That's how I got involved. I was the, the toxicologist, scientist, I was a resident. And I would meet with small groups because every every community, every homeowner got a sheet of paper this size that had the level of chemicals in their basement you know, different seven or eight chemicals that were measured by the state of New York. And uh, I would help to try to explain what, this, what the numbers mean to people, and I sat with them. And one woman said to me, well, I've got benzene at this level in my house. What does that mean? And I said to her, you know, well, actually, I can talk to you about risks, and I can tell you what other workers have had, but I can't tell you what's going to happen to your child. Because that was what she wanted to know. My, my son was born here. He's been exposed to this chemical all his life. He was three or four years old. What's going to happen to him? And I had to look her in the face and say, I don't know. And she looked at me after a moment of silence and said, how can we put a man on the moon but yet not be able to answer this question? 
and that blew me away. I mean, you know, I learned a lot at, at Harvard about a lot of things in textbooks. But what I've learned from people like you in these communities after all these years has taught me more about how science is used in the world than I ever learned at Harvard. <clears throat> you folks have a touch and a feel for the realities of what's going on. So when someone does a risk analysis looking at benzene in isolation of the 12 to 15 or 30 other chemicals that you're being exposed to, when they're not looking at the cumulative effect of all of these chemicals that you're breathing at the same time, and you're not just breathing it once, you're breathing it every day for years at a time, that's a whole different <laughs> analysis that, as scientists, we don't know how to do. You know, I, I threw away the risk analysis approach 25 years ago, and I'm never going to do that again. That doesn't work. And I even worked with EPA and some others to try to help them find this cumulative risk approach. But EPA gave up on it because they didn't know how to do it. The best they could do is with cancer, well, we'll add the risk of the cancer, do five or six carcinogens that you might be exposed to at the same time. But that doesn't even begin to tell the story either. So I guess I, 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 guess I say this because you can't believe these scientists when they tell you that the risk isn't any worse than living in another city. Well, the risk isn't any worse, as they said to the folks at Love Canal, it's not any worse living here than living in other parts of Niagara Falls. Well, that doesn't say that it's safe. That doesn't mean that, that these exposures aren't causing damage or affecting your health. It just means that as scientists, we don't know what these numbers are going to do to you. So, um, so that takes me back to something Lois well said, is that it's up to you folks to decide what you want to go get it. You have to use the science to, and, and one of the things Lois well said is something I've thought about for you all that would make a lot of sense here, is you, you should take a log, you should start a log of all these health problems that are occurring in, this, in the community. Who's getting the nosebleeds? Who's getting the itchy rashes in the skins? Where did they live? When did it happen? And use that, use that information, build that and use that information to go to the media, to go to your decision makers to say, this is what's going on today, this is what happened yesterday, this is what's happening every single day in this community. You can't wait for the scientists, the experts to come in and say, oh well, now we know that the, the, the people are getting cancer here. But they'll never be able to say that because they're using tools that can't tell you that. So you have to recognize that these problems are happening as Lois did. She didn't wait for someone to say there's 56% birth defect. She went out and found that and used that, educated people, and, 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 and helped that out within that fight. And you can do the same here. You really can. But you have to recognize that these things are happening here and that you're the only folks who can really take charge of what's going to happen in this community. You can't rely on the experts to be the ones who are going to say, well, there's now enough problems here that we can do something. Because that's just not going to happen. So, anyhow, I'm going to stop there. Uh, I will be around, as Lois said, to help answer some of these questions and work with you folks. I don't want to, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it, as a scientist, when I was almost 40 years ago when that woman looked at me, as a scientist, we still can't answer those questions today. And so that really speaks to what we need to do, what you all need to do, is you need to take control of these situations. So there. Thank you very much. Okay, so that was the talk. Um,
in fact, during the talk, I heard um, a friend of mine being mentioned, uh, Don Chapman from the Just Moms group here in St. Louis, Fighting Republic uh, Inc., Republic Waste. Um, they didn't get into all of it because the situation here in uh, in St. Louis with the what they call a subsurface smoldering event. Okay, Talk, it's true. We should never use the language of corporate because they're trying to dis, be dismissive and reduce what this really means. I mean, think about that term at, at two landfills here in St. Louis. And one is owned by uh, Republic Waste, and the other one is a landfill with uh, spent nuclear fuel rods that were illegally dumped, and so they put it in this landfill. And the subsurface smoldering event is getting closer from the Republic landfill is getting closer to the radioactive fuel rods. And I think it's like last thing like 200 feet away. Now, uh, I've heard, you know, some politicians say, well, it's not if, if the smoldering event, in other words, a fire, underground fire, reaches the uh, nuclear rods, that somehow there'd be a mushroom cloud. Well, no, that's true. I wrote about this. What what happened is the result of a basically a major dirty bomb. And a dirty bomb doesn't result in a mushroom cloud. A dirty bomb is essentially a careless release of radioactive particulates into the air and the water. You don't see a mushroom cloud, cloud but it can be just as deadly. Okay. The U.S. government knows this. You know, that's why they're... You know, they worry if they find an alleged terrorist with, you know, some nuclear materials in a briefcase, dirty bomb. Well, here in St. Louis, with those two landfills, we've got the mother blanker of dirty bombs, okay? And Just Moms has been fighting it. And when they call it a subsurface smoldering event, think about it, folks. What smolders? I only know one thing that smolders, besides the temper, that is. Fire. And what they're talking about is an underground methane fire that keeps raging on. They call it a chemical reaction. Well, duh. What do they think a methane fire is? It's a chemical reaction. But it's a methane fire, and it happens often in landfills that have been improperly or uh, improperly maintained or have not had maintenance. See, landfills have to have, they can only hold so much, and they have to have a way of venting built-up gases. And nasty things happen like underground methane fires when a landfill has been improperly or ineffectually maintained. That's it. Again, corporate negligence. And so that's what they're talking about there. And, you know, he, and then Love Canal. And here we're dealing with East Palestine. What do those two stories have in common? What they have in common is an ongoing and systemic pattern of plans, in other words, premeditated corporate negligence with government help coming from both parties because of influence peddling, period. You can say, oh, Citizens United, well, these are campaign contributions, they're not buying influence, hogwash, of course they are, okay? And so that's what happened here in East Palestine. Now, there's always somebody that wants to throw gasoline on a fire, to borrow a very bad metaphor, I admit it. And that is um, Charlie Kirk. 
Okay, Charlie Kirk is his own show on TV. He's with Turning Point USA. In fact, not with. He started Turning Point USA, which is uh, basically an advocacy group that tries to take normal college students and turn them into raging far-right lunatics, my opinion. And Charlie Kirk is now saying that the East Palestine train disaster is due to, quote, this is his, these are his words, not mine, quote, a war on white people, end quote. Well, you know, to borrow, um, excuse me, to borrow a phrase from an old, uh, an old commercial and dating myself, I think from the 1960s, for Starkist Tuna. There's Charlie the Tuna, right? And they say when Charlie's wrong, they go, sorry, Charlie. Well, this instance for Charlie Kirk, sorry, Charlie. This has nothing to do with war on white people. This has everything to do with corporate negligence and government helping cover it up. Put bluntly, Republicans and Democrats equally responsible in a lot of ways. Uh, furthermore, Charlie Kirk claiming that, well, this is a war on white people. Well, this happened in Ohio. East Palestine is in Ohio. And, you know, when a disaster like this happens, whatever state it happens in, the state-level politicians, the governor and then the legislature, they have to formally request assistance from federal agencies like FEMA. All right? You know, FEMA can come and say, do you need help? But the state has to actually say, yes, we need help. Please give it to us. And I don't know if Gov- Republican Governor DeWine's done that yet. How many days in? So, again, sorry, Charlie, you're wrong. This isn't a war on white people. And let's get into the proof because I'm going to prove it. So last week we talked about how the braking systems on these trains is so incredibly old. It's an air brake system uh, that was originated to the Civil War era. They were brought on in 1868. Now, I know I'm not saying that these brakes on the train that derailed were over 100 years old. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the system was designed in 1868 with, as far as I know, no improvements. There is another form of brake, an ECP, an electronic brake, but these railroads don't want to spend the money, even though they're making profits like you wouldn't believe uh so let's go to the actual documentation because unlike charlie kirk here at progressive news network and the environmental justice report we cite sources and we're fair okay true i i don't like uh republicans i don't like conservatives i'll admit it um But by the same token, if a Democrat does something wrong, then you've got to report that, too. It's about the truth. So the the lever, or the lever, rather, David Sirota's publication has been doing phenomenal work, okay? Normally, I do not usually cite sources, you know, cite uh, articles and studies from the same source, but he's done such good reporting, you know, it's just there, all right? So let's go to Lever News, and we're going to backtrack a little bit here. Okay. So, you know, we talked about um, last week. Let me get to this here. I just lost my place, folks. Sorry about that. Um, All right. So 
right now we have the Department of Transportation led by Mayor Pete Buttigieg and it's on it's um, incumbent upon them to make sure that all the proper laws were followed and to correct this situation contact Department of Justice which is DOJ if need need to and so on and so forth well you know um, first of all Mayor Pete or Pete Buttigieg you know he's a brilliant man don't get me wrong he's incredibly well educated but he doesn't know squat about about transportation systems he's not qualified to hold that position you know and this is kind of an age-old um, uh, pet peeve of mine anyway I have this insane notion that I think professional departments even if it's a patronage appointment of a head should still be headed by people that are expert in that field it should not be headed necessarily by arrogant lawyers or arrogant business people um, that therefore you know the Department of Education should be headed by an experienced top educator DOJ by an experienced uh, you know prosecutor and litiga litigator I think Department of Transportation should be headed by an experienced person in that field I, I just do and you know we've got so many lawyers in everything because you know let's face it they think they know it all they don't but they they insist they do um, and Mayor Pete's no different so there's this piece here and it was published uh, February 15th day after Valentine's what a Valentine's right and um, excuse me a little drink of water here mm. there we go so the headline reads in the lever the lever rather but a jag pretends he's powerless to reduce derailment risk and it's written by David Sirota Rebecca Burns Matthew Cunningham Cook Julia Rock and Andrew Perez and under it there's um, you know quote it says here quote facing pressure to act America's chief rail regulator in other words Pete Buttigieg now insists he is constrained he's not so uh, you know Buttigieg who's the, you know the head of the Department of Transportation uh, issued a tweet okay about the derailment in East Palestine from the Norfolk Southern's train derailment and you know the tweet said the following quote we're constrained by law on some areas of rail regulation like the breaking rule withdrawn by the Trump administration in 2018 because the law passed in Congress in 2015 okay end quote except that's not exactly true you know there's different kinds of lies here there are direct blatant lies you know when Trump says he is you know a fortunate genius well that's kind of obvious it's a lie but there's also lies of omission where you know it's, it's misinformation you only give part of the information that implies something else that's why when you go to court and you swear on the Bible to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth because our court system acknowledges the idea that okay unless you get the whole truth you're not necessarily getting the truth there are such a thing as lies of omission so Buttigieg's tweet is taught according to this article is referring to a law that was passed by Congress in 2015 and that is as documented by www.fhwa.dot department of transportation.gov 
Okay. Um, and, you know, basically this was a, a law, it was enacted during the Obama administration. Now, the Obama administration, as I said last week, wanted stronger um, requirements, but between the Republicans in Congress and as well as the lobby for the railways, um, it got watered down to this little remnant but it, will, it was something, okay? But Trump repealed the law, and this law would have required not all, but some trains that were carrying what are considered hazmat or hazardous materials that they would have to replace their, quote, Civil War era braking systems with new electronically controlled pneumatic or ECP brake technology, end quote. Okay? I love the fact that this, we're using braking systems on our trains dating back to the Civil War era. Uh, you know, you have to let the lunacy of that action just kind of lay there for a minute. Okay? That we've allowed this to continue. All right? So, anyway, Trump basically... Um, Okay, here's what happened then. Buttigieg was talking about this law he was talking about. It was a law passed in Congress in 2015. Um, and this was by the urging of the rail industry themselves, quote, requiring the executive branch to conduct cost-benefit analysis of the ECP break rule before enacting it, end quote. So in other words, profits before people. Uh, Congress passed this law in 2015 to fight what Obama was trying to do by having up-to-date braking systems on our freight trains carrying all sorts of toxic chemicals, and they whittled it down to it is dependent on a cost-benefit analysis. And if the cost-benefit analysis makes the uh, electronic brakes basically a little too expensive, then it doesn't happen. Then you're, you have to hold on to those Civil War-era brakes. And that's what the Trump administration used. They used that law to basically destroy the breaking rule. Uh, but like so many things in Trump world, <clears throat> the cost-benefit analysis that his administration uh, performed was discredited. And it was discredited because it was fraudulent. And it's according to APNews.com. Um, so... Basically, I believe the source I saw said that the Trump administration overestimated the cost. They said the, there would be cost overruns, basically, of like 100 and was it 116 million over what would be prudent to have these electronic systems. Except that 116 million over cost was a lie. Like so many things, Trumpy, it was a lie. Okay. And that's why it was discredited. Okay. Uh, now, the lever under David Sirota did make inquiries for the story, and they did hear back from a transportation department spokesperson who said that its agencies would, quote, use all relevant authorities to ensure accountability and improve, and improve safety, end quote, once the investigation to the cause of the derailment is completed. Um, 
the spokesperson was asked by the lever about the breaking rule, and the spokesperson claimed that it would be difficult to, quote, reinstate the rule in its previous configuration, end quote, given earlier legal challenges. Um, this is straight from uh, Sorota's piece, quote, the spokesperson said, proposing a new rule would require performing a new cost-benefit analysis, <coughs> excuse me, though they acknowledge that the department has the ability to prepare that analysis. Now, in 2018, Democrat Senator Jeff Merkley actually demanded that the DOT, Department of Transportation, um, you know, conduct this cost-benefit analysis. And this is as documented by APnews.com. Huh? Uh, the article goes on to say, quote, a coalition of environmental organizations has also been asking the department to redo the analysis. After the Trump administration rescinded the breaking rule, groups including the Sierra Club and Earth Justice appealed the decision, citing the flawed analysis and asking the Transportation Department to prepare a new one. Get this, the appeal is still pending, end quote. Think about that. 2018, Senator Merkley demands Department of Transportation, this is under Trump, um, you know, do another cost-benefit analysis. They were joined by Sierra Club and Earth Justice. Earth Justice appealed the Trump Department's decisions under regulations.gov. The appeal is still pending. This is five years later, folks. Now, if that appeal had been dealt with already, and if the breaking rule had been put into place, we, not, we might not have had this problem in East Palestine especially if that train had been required to have electronic brakes. Could those electronic brakes have prevented the derailment? Yeah. Um, you know, would the, would, the tra would the train, it might have derailed a little bit, not to this point. The ECP brakes are that far superior because the ECP brakes, my understanding is it stops everything at one time. Whereas the old brakes stop one car, then the next car, then the next car, to so get the slinky effect. That's why when you see these derailments, it's kind of like tiddlywinks that have fallen, and they're kind of all different directions. That's why. That's why they bunched up, because remember what a train is. We've got these cars, and they're connected by this, this little device here. Okay? So the train's kind of loose. You know, if you've ever ridden on a train, try walking when it's not like walking on a bus, Okay? Uh, especially when you change cars, you know, it's a, it's, you kind of go through a door and then there's this little platform and you feel the cold air and then go into the next door and it's just held by this little latching device. That's it. So of course you're going to get that slinky effect, but the new electronic brakes, everything stops at once. The chance for, you know, that tiddlywinks effect greatly reduced. Now, the managing attorney at Earth Justice, a woman named Kristen Boyles, was uh, cited in this article. She said, quote, we had hoped to see the issue move forward under the Biden administration. It's not clear that it's a priority, end quote. Okay. Um, the lever went on to interview experts in railroad law and ra railroad regulations. And the experts agreed that, quote, Buttigieg's Transportation Department can and should 
redo that analysis to allow for a reinstatement of the breaking rule, end quote. Um, goes on to say here, they quoted John Risch, who is a retired railroad, railroad worker and former legislative director of the Sheet Metal Air Rail and Transport Workers Union. Mr. Risch said, quote, the Federal Railroad Administration's mission is to promote rail safety. If they believe that ECP brakes are essential to rail safety, they could require ECP brakes on certain trains or whatever they want to do, end quote. Okay? So, once again, why? Well, it's cost, all right? You have to remember, Pete Buttigieg is not a progressive. Let's get real here. Yes, he's a gay man. He's got a husband and some kids and mazel tov. I'm happy for him. But he might be progressive on social issues, but not on fiscal issues and not on environmental issues because that's money. See, Dr. King used to complain a lot about the Democratic moderates. He said they were worse than the Klansmen sometimes. Because with the Klansmen, you at least knew what you were dealing with. Moderates pretend they're on your side and that they go along with the system as corrupt. Well, the same for people that say that they, in my opinion, say they're social progressives but fiscal conservatives. I mean, the reason some people, in my opinion, are social liberals or social progressives is because it doesn't cost any money. Okay, it's easy to say. I'm anti-racist. It's important, but it's still, it's easy to say, you know, I support gay marriage or whatever. Um, it doesn't cost you any corporate money. But these are the same people that fail to see or refuse to see, I'd say it's refuse to see, that a living wage is a social issue. That health care for all is a social issue. That equal justice for the law is a social issue. That environmental rights, the right to not be poisoned in your own communities due to corporate negligence, is a social issue. Okay, it's an artificial dividing line, and I'm tired of those people. And Buttigieg is of the same cloth, okay? He's corporate through and through, and so is President Biden. Just, you know, let's stop pretending. Um, so, again, uh, Mr. Risch from the Federal Railroad Administration, I'm sorry, from the, let me start again. John Risch, who is a retired rail worker and former legislative director of the Sheet Metal Air Rail and Transport Workers Union, also added that, quote, um, according to this article, that, quote, nothing prevents Buttigieg from using his existing rulemaking authority to expand the definition of a high-hazard flammable train to cover trains like the one in Ohio, end quote. Okay, so under the little bit of regulation they have, which is very minimal, if a train is called a high-hazard flammable train, then it would qualify and you'd have to get those new electronic brakes. Believe it or not, the train that poisoned East Palestine was not classified as a high-hazard flammable train. I kid you not. Now, this article goes on to say, quote, under the existing limited definition, the Ohio train, which was carrying five tanker cars of vinyl chloride, a Class II flammable gas, and known carcinogen, was exempted 
from the classification's more stringent safety regulations. Can you hear that? That dead silence? That That's the sound of influence peddling, my friends, at a Herculean level. The Lever article goes on to say, quote, officials warned the vinyl chloride on board the derailed train could explode, necessitating local evacuations. Crews ultimately released and burned the vinyl chloride, creating a giant, toxic mushroom cloud. Okay. Now, it goes on to say this article that according to the Department of Transportation regulations that are already in force, high-hazard flammable, tra- flammable trains are also required to travel at slower speeds. They're also supposed to use newer rail cars that have what are called, quote, enhanced safety features, and they're required to provide, quote, notification to state and tribal agencies of the types of hazardous materials they are transporting, end quote. Now, the federal agency that's supposed to actually investigate these transportation accidents, the NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, uh, according to the article, quote, previously unsuccessfully pushed for the Transportation Department to require ECP brakes on trains carrying Class II flammable gases. Okay. The article goes on to say, in 2019, after the Trump administration repealed the ECP brake rule, the NTSB urged the Transportation Department to require trains carrying liquefied natural gas to utilize the better braking technology, end quote, and that's according to regulations.gov. So you've got one government agency, the one that's tasked with investigating these alleged accidents that were perfectly preventable, urging Transportation Department to say, put on the good brakes! Right now, Buttigieg's agency is looking at a separate rule. Get this. According to Lever News, I, I can't... I, I'm just going to read this sentence. It's, it's really sickening. This is a, another article on levernews.com. It says, meanwhile, meanwhile, Buttigieg's agency is currently considering a separate rule that would weaken brake testing standards. Would weaken the standards to test these brakes. Why? Okay. So now they have a quote from Jeff Hauser from a group called the Revolving Door Project. Now the Revolving Door Project is a a think tank that calls out how these politicians left government to work for the very corporations that they were previously regulating, whatever, and they go back and forth. So, you know, it's, it's a very incestuous relationship. And according to Jeff Hauser of the Revolving Door Project, which, again, tracks corporate influence on government, quote, Secretary Buttigieg should call out the break rule repeal for the horrendous decision. What? I'm going to say this again. Quote, Secretary Buttigieg should call out the break rule repeal for the horrendous decision it was. Start working to implement a new rule. Take Norfolk Southern to task and push back on corporations deciding how uh, how the transportation department regulates them. Okay. Hauser goes on to say, quote, anything shorter of that only signals to the railroads that this type of incident will be tolerated. 
This is not that is not an acceptable message from the Secretary of Transportation. End quote. Amen, brother. But here you have Mayor Pete saying he's powerless. There's nothing I can do about it except it's not true. It's a lie. Instead, he's looking to weaken safety rules. So now we have uh, Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, part of the squad. Um, they're call- following that report. They're calling out Buttigieg and asking him to use his power to you know, fix these safety rules, improve them. Uh, you also have... The Democratic, the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, new governor, Josh Shapiro, um, who released a statement this past Tuesday as well. Uh, keep in mind, East Palestine is just miles from the Pennsylvania border. And uh, Pennsylvania governor Josh Shapiro is asking President Biden and Buttigieg to, quote, re-examine what constitutes a high-hazard flammable train and revisit the need for regulation requiring high-hazard flammable trains to carry more advanced safety and braking equipment, end quote. Now, that was a Democratic governor. Now you have a Republican governor in Ohio, Mike DeWine, and when he was asked about the rules that exempted the Norfolk Southern train that derailed and poisoned East Palestine, uh, and he was asked about the high-hazard flammable train classification, he said, quote, this is DeWine. This is absurd, and we need to look at this. Congress needs to take a look at how these things are handled. We should know when we have trains carrying hazardous materials that are going through the state of Ohio, end quote. So Republican Governor Mike DeWine may be feeling the pressure, whatever, but he's doing the right thing as well. Now, Senator, new Senator J.D. Vance, you know, Mr. Hillbilly Elegy, uh, he put out a statement. And he also raised questions about, quote, the quality of the braking systems, um, in addition to, quote, the Transportation Department's regulatory approach to our nation's rail system. Now, on Wednesday, Senator Vance and Senator Rubio sent a letter to Department of Transportation, and they asked, quote, whether a crew of two rail workers plus one trainee is able to effectively monitor 150 cars, end quote. They also asked whether it was necessary to, again, expand the definition of high-hazard flammable trains to include trains like the one in East Palestine that poisoned the town. Um, I find it curious. I'm glad they finally discovered that this rule is bad, but where were all these Republicans during the Trump administration when Trump repealed the breaking rule? Where were all these Republicans when they voted to kill an even better safety regulation that Obama wanted during his presidency. Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. And this goes to the article that uh, I talked about last week that ran on February 8th from the Lever, excuse me, where the headline was, Rail Companies Blocked Safety Rules before Ohio derailment, fantastic article. It really gives you the important information written by David Sirota, Julia Rock, Rebecca Burns, and Matthew Cunningham Cook. And so the subheadline is, quote, 
Norfolk Southern helped convince government officials to repeal break rules, and corporate lobbyists watered down hazmat, in other words, hazardous material safety regulations. Okay? This is what we're dealing with, folks. You know, again, um, so why don't they want to do this? Well, groups like Norfolk Southern have not only cut their workforce by a third, according to the Leavers reporting, um, during the railway strike, which President Biden interrupted and sided with the railroads, you know, railway workers were blowing the whistle about the, the lack of safety regulations, the danger posed. They also wanted sick leave. They're not allowed sick leave. So you have people showing up for work. They're exhausted. They're transporting highly dangerous materials. Okay, this was bound to happen. And, you know, one thing that Lever reported, um, they did say that Buttigieg said there will be more derailments. Of course there will be. All right. Our infrastructure is a mess. Our railroads haven't been maintained. All right. They haven't been. Um, you don't, you've got braking systems on freight cars that date back to the Civil War era. Even though there are better braking systems, the Obama administration pushed for better safety regulations all around our nation's trains, including better braking systems. Those regulations were voted down by Republicans and then watered down so that, yes, you could get the better braking systems, but only on those trains classified as high, highly um, dangerous hazardous materials. And even a train like the one that derailed in East Palestine wasn't so classified. just wasn't. So Norfolk Southern along with some other railroads, are making astronomical profits. So where's the money going? Well, according, and if you listen to the show from last week, according to last week, uh, they're spending their money on stock buybacks. Kid you not. So they can make more money without spending a penny on increasing safety. And like the um, the Love Canal story, this is an instance where, one, you can't use the language of corporate, and you have to fight like hell, because both parties have turned on us. They were never for us in the first place. All right, so let's go on. Give me a second here. All right. Now, There are some other stories. Give me a second, folks. Ah. Now, we do know there's some environmental groups that have threatened legal action if Secretary Buttigieg doesn't act. Okay? We do know that. So let me get to that one. Sorry about that. I'm on this little um, Chromebook, so it's kind of a pain in the butt here. This is from two days ago, February 17th, a piece 
in the Lever by Rebecca Burns. Uh, the headline, Enviros, in other words, environmental organizations threaten legal action if Buttigieg doesn't act. Um, organizations demand the transportation secretary revisit, again, a repealed brake safety rule or else they will consider taking legal action. So there's six environmental groups that are considering this legal action. Um, and they sent, last Thursday, they sent a letter to Buttigieg. And again, according to the article, quote, the ruling question would force railroads to begin upgrading freight trains Civil War era braking systems to newer electronically controlled brakes, allowing for faster and safer stops. But it goes on to say, according to the lever, in 2017, after rail industry donors delivered more than $6 million to GOP campaigns, President Donald Trump's administration repealed the 2015 rule requiring the newer brakes in some trains transporting hazardous materials as Lee reported the week ago. In 2018, the environmental groups, including Earth Justice Sierra Club, I mentioned this earlier, appealed the move. Um, they claimed there was a faulty cost-benefit analysis the Trump administration used to justify the repeal. Uh, there was an investigation conducted by um, the Associated Press, and, it, and that's the one I was talking about before. The Trump, it also revealed, they found out that the Trump administration very conveniently omitted, at the very least, $117 million, quote, in estimated damages from train derailment when it determined the cost of upgrading electronic braking systems would exceed the benefits, end quote. Gee whiz, anything associated with, well, not anything. The Trump administration, you know, basically telling a lie of omission or telling a lie at all to basically protect rich corporations and rich folk. I'm shocked. Not. Okay. Again, the appeal's still pending. Um, but in all fairness, it's not just Trump. The Biden administration hasn't moved on this either, and they could. All right. Um, Kristen Boyles is quoted. She's a managing attorney at Earth Justice. She's the one that authored the letter that was sent to Buttigieg. And, uh, Ms. Boyles told the Lever, quote, we frankly expected little response from the department under the prior administration. After all, it had just eliminated the updated break requirements. But the silence has continued well into the Biden administration, end quote. And that's according to the letter. Um, so, you know, that's when Buttigieg started feeling the pressure and said he was constrained by law on some areas of rail regulation, except that's really not true. Now, what happened in 2015 when this 2015 law was kicked out, the 2015 law originally, okay, included, I'm just reading from the article, quote, included a provision requiring the Transportation Department to redo an earlier cost-benefit analysis on the implementation of electronic brakes. But there's nothing stopping, and this was and this was at the behest of rail lobbyists. Okay, so the rail lobbyists wanted to prove that it's not needed. But this, uh, you know, the author of this piece explains also there's nothing stopping Buttigieg himself or his department from going back to that analysis of the Trump the Trump administration analysis that's been proven wrong and saying you know what. 
we're going to look at it again, and we're going to reinstate the break requirement, you know, until we're told not to. And um, that's what rail and administrative law experts told the lever uh, just this past week, and that's according to levernews.com. So, you know, once again, this is serious, all right? The um, This is a bomb train. It has poisoned this town and beyond. The EPA has recently confirmed that hazardous chemicals spilled into the Ohio River. The Ohio River is the drinking water source for like 5 million people. Um, and even though they've said recently that, oh, you can drink the water, the city of Cincinnati is telling their people don't. Okay. So, uh, you know, once again, nothing new here. This is kind of outrageous. All right. So what is the um so what's the Biden administration doing? February sixteenth, the same like same week. Uh Peace in the Lever by Rebecca Burns again and Julia Rock. The Biden Department of Justice is backing the railway company. The headline is Biden DOJ backing Norfolk Southern's bid to block lawsuits. The company who's train derailed in Ohio is asking the Supreme Court to kill a suit by a stick rail worker and help the firm block future lawsuits. You know, and I remember hearing on the Young Turks, <clears throat> I think it was today, or no, it was the other day actually, um, Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan asked the DOJ rep, what are you doing here? You know, Biden administration should be on the side of the public, not on the side of the railway company that was careless, that that failed to do basic maintenance, that poisoned an entire town and possibly more, and used the the astronomical profits they've made on stock buybacks. Excuse me, a little more water here. The original lawsuit was filed a while back, okay, in 2016, um, there was uh, a man named Robert Mallory, and he worked, he was a former Norfolk Southern car man. He was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. So he filed a lawsuit the following year, and that's according to SupremeCourt.gov. And Mr. Mallory alleged that the illness he received came from exposure to asbestos and other tem- and other toxic chemicals on the job, and that the railroad failed to provide, you know, reasonable safety equipment. And so Mr. Mallory filed the suit in where he lives in the Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas, um, even though he didn't work in the state. Uh, but the lawyer representing him was from Pennsylvania. Um, his lawyers are from Pennsylvania, so they thought they'd get fair justice there. Now, Pennsylvania is known as a consent by registration statute. Um, they, I'm sorry, let me go back up. Pennsylvania has what's considered a consent by registration statute. And some states have that for a long time, and it basically says when corporations – you know, register to do business in the state, they are 
at the same time they register, they are also giving consent to be ruled by that state's courts. And, of course, Norfolk Southern doesn't like that. And, you know, once again, keep in mind, some people call this forum shopping. But corporate entities forum shop, forum shop all the time. Nobody's talking about restraining them, just the rest of us. Um, and, you know, the forum shopping is considered normal for corporations. And they give an example. For example, quote, many corporations cho choose to register in Delaware for tax purposes, even if they have no physical presence in the state. Okay. They give another example in this article. The article says, quote, similarly, the infamous opioid manufacturer, Purdue Pharma, chose to file its bankruptcy case in White Plains, New York, in order to secure a friendly judge, a move that was allowed because one of the company's units had changed its address to that location just six months earlier. Okay. So basically, um, one of the people from Public Citizen is quoted as saying, quote, the idea that it's somehow fundamentally unfair to pose the burden of defending a lawsuit in a particular jurisdiction or corporation as applied to these multi-state and multinational corporations is a fiction, okay? Um, you know, this is basically saying that people should have the same rights as corporations, all right? That, that's just it. They forum shop. Why shouldn't people that have been wronged by a corporation be allowed to forum shop? Um, you know, so... This is what's happening, and honestly, the idea that the Biden Department of Justice is siding with the railways is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. You know, this is about a corporation trying to limit their liability, even though the railroads and the lobbyists blocked reasonable legis reasonable regulation so that high hazard trains have some reasonable safety that's it it's nothing astronomical but corporate greed's gotten that far out of line it's disgusting absolutely disgusting and here's the Biden DOJ is siding with the railroad, and yes, the test case in the Supreme Court, it made it all, Mr. Mallory's case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Biden Department of Justice is siding with the railroad, the same railroad that poisoned East Palestine, Ohio, against a railroad worker who came down with colon cancer, and yes, if you're exposed to massive quantities of asbestos, for instance, without proper breathing gear, yes, you will come down with cancer. It's pretty well established. And the Biden administration siding against this individual worker. It's disgusting. So those of you that think, okay, I only pick on conservatives and Republicans, it's not true. It's not about the label. It's about your actions, what you choose to do. So 
there's more information there, but enough's enough for today. By now, it's painfully clear that, yes, both parties are placing profits before people. And now we see entire towns being poisoned due to corporate negligence. This derailment could have been prevented. Period. It did not have to happen. That's why I say it was planned negligence. They are trying to twist the regulation, twist the law as much as possible to avoid doing the most, the most minimal of safety regulations. The most minimal. If you or I did that, we would be sitting behind bars, and, ho- and I hope you all look good in orange, okay? So by now, painfully clear that, yes, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, place profits before people. You know, why is it necessary that – how do I put this? Why is the necessary requirement – of an up-to-date braking system for these bomb trains dependent on easy affordability as opposed to public safety. I really don't give a rat's ass if the cost-benefit analysis says, well, it's going to be too, it's going to be more expensive to do right now initially than, you know, will they be able to recoup their investment? Tough. You know, when, when we're told the brakes on our car are deficient, and we failed, and it fails inspection, and we choose to drive with unsafe brakes, and we can't stop, and we wind up killing someone, you know what? We're not allowed to do a cost-benefit analysis to say, well, you know, it was just too expensive for the brakes, so I chose to drive without them. Why should corporate persons be allowed to do the same? Okay? Bottom line. This isn't about corporate personhood. This is about corporate personhood where basically they have privilege above real people. Period. These are bomb trains. They are not safe. Not by any stretch of the imagination. And again, I'm not saying all of them. That would be unfair. But what happened in East Palestine, Ohio, yeah, it was a bomb train. It turned into a bomb. It poisoned an entire town. Period. And, you know, before Charlie Kirk has a hissy fit, understand this. The train lobby gave $6 million to Republicans in 2016. Okay? For those elections. Oh, and by the way, can you guess who's the third highest recipient of... um, Basically, money from the railway industry in the U.S. Senate. Senator, GOP Senator John Thune. Yeah. Yeah, this is about influence peddling, folks, pure and simple. And again, I, for the life of me, cannot understand, you know, once again, if there's a safety problem, you know, uh, forget the analogy about the car. If, for instance, um, oh, let's say you're using, uh, you're an artist and you've got a an art studio and you're using flammable materials and the community has certain regulations on um, how you vent 
that building and so on and so forth, you're not allowed to do a cost-benefit analysis to decide whether or not you're going to obey the law. Okay, that It's not contingent upon affordability and making it affordable so you still have a profit or an astronomical profit. It's the law. So when they added that cost-benefit analysis crap, no, no, that's not that's not legitimate. In fact, if we had a legitimate Supreme Court, the requirement of a cost-benefit analysis for something as fundamental as braking systems on trains carrying highly hazardous materials, the cost-benefit analysis clause should be declared not only Ill- illegitimate but irrelevant. But we don't have an honest Supreme Court. That's the problem. Okay? That's what we're dealing with now. Okay, folks. So now we're going to move on to something kind of humorous. It it, it is and it isn't, okay? Uh, We're getting ready for our Jackass of the Week report. Now, this particular jackass, or should I say um, Jenny, because it's a woman, doubles not only as a a stupid jackass, just beyond belief, but also just a generally despicable person. All right, we're talking beyond belief. So here we go. Give me a minute. We're waiting. Whoops. Sorry about that, folks. I'm waiting for that sound effect. Not cooperating. I probably should just learn how to download it right now. Here we go. Welcome to the Jackass of the Week Awards! Rayon! Rayon! Okay, this week, our Jackass of the Week! Very special jackass, should I say a Jenny. This is a person who's a person of color who is embracing the Confederacy. It's beyond belief. And it's none other than the first formally announced Republican candidate for the GOP nomination for president, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley was formerly, among other things, the governor of South Carolina. Nikki Haley, her parentage, her parents came from India. She is a woman of color. And yet, here she was, the governor of South Carolina. Keep in mind, South Carolina was the first state to succeed from the Union. And based, I saw the video, but also the Guardian did an article as well um, that was reworked just the other day um, by Martin Pengeli. And it says, Nikki Haley, video shows Republican candidates saying... U.S. US states can succeed. Contender also says civil war fought over slavery was one side, fighting for tradition, and the other fighting for change. Okay, so let me get to, I kind of, let me read that again. Contender also says civil war fought over, fought over slavery was one side, uh, fought over slavery was one side fighting for tradition and other fighting for change. So tradition versus change is how Nikki Haley in 2010 classified the Civil War. Okay, I I just can't believe it even, all right? Um, So she was, the footage was in Patriot Takes, 
It's an anonymously run social media account and fundraising pack. Um, let's see. And it claims to monitor and expose right-wing extremism and other threats to democracy. Um, they, they found this video. And it was from 2010, and it was an unnamed neo-Confederate group. Okay? And Haley was asked about the cause of the Civil War. And she said, I'm going to try and use her southern accent. I think you had one side of the Civil War that was fighting for tradition and one side of the Civil War that's fighting for change, end quote. Um, She went on to say, quote, at the end of the day, what I think we need to remember is that, you know, everyone's supposed to have their rights. Everyone's supposed to be free. Everyone's supposed to have the same freedoms as anyone else. I think it was tradition versus change. So then she was asked, tradition versus change on what? And Haley said, on individual rights and liberty of people. Okay, this is, un- I'm hoping you can hear this. Hold on. Okay, let's go to the next part here. Hopefully you'll hear it. Yeah, she was interviewed by the Sons of Confederate Veterans about her feelings on the Confederate flag. She defends the flag, insists it isn't racist, and that she even supported Confederate Memorial Month. Here it is.
Okay, I can't stand listening to this anymore. How in the hell can you place the Confederacy and slavery in a positive way? That's why I want to ask this woman. Seriously. Nikki, Mrs. Haley, or whatever you go by, Nikki Haley, you need to understand something. The Civil War was fought because of slavery. Slavery was big business. When you talk about planta- a plantation, a plantation was a big farm. Okay, Don't think uh, Gone with the Wind, Tara. This was very big business. The plantation owners of the Civil War era had so much wealth, proportionally, it would have been like the equivalent Elon Musk now. Need I say more? And for somebody who's college educated, Nikki Haley knows better. She's pandering to the racist in our in our midst. And to say that she wants to have, you know, Confederacy, Confederate History Month, as long as it's done in a positive way. What's next? Holocaust History Month? To try and portray the Holocaust in a positive way? There is no such thing. In both instances, slavery and Jim Crow in the U.S. and the Holocaust in Europe, in all three instances, they were crimes against humanity. Period. There is no explanation. The Civil War, let me get back. The Confederacy, I'm so disgusted with this woman, I want to scream, okay? When Nikki Haley refuses to admit that the Confederacy was initiated, it was... The Confederacy was an illegal insurrection against the U.S. Constitution, against the United States, and it was done to defend slavery and, yes, systemic racism that served as a theoretical foundation used to justify the evil of slavery. And January 6th was another outgrowth of the same Confederacy, the Neo-Confederates, and the only culture represented by the Confederacy is one of criminal conspiracy and, put bluntly, moral depravity. Period. There is no equivalence here. She can issue all her false equivalencies she wants to. But this is about moral depravity. This is about trying to whitewash the real history the Civil War was about slavery. It was fought to defend the money that they made through the illegal and immoral enslavement of fellow human beings. Period. There is nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. And so when these conservatives push this crap about originalism, like originalist stance, because it lets them maintain the unfair and, un, and, and, and basically unjustified status quo. That's it. Nothing more. It's letting the thieves get away with what they stole. So when I say to Nikki Haley, congratulations, she's our jackass of the week, or Jenny of the week. We also need a new award for somebody who is truly a despicable villain. Because that's what she is. And for a person of color to side with these neo-Confederates, for a person of color to side with these neo-Confederates, which is the which basically is the same as being a Nazi, no, it's not acceptable.
and by the way, the Nazis were extremely racist. And what she fails to understand, a lot of whites don't. Put bluntly, and I'm speaking as a Jew, the Confederate flag is to blacks what's a swastika is to Jews. That's it. That's all you need to know. Absolutely outrageous. And these are the same bastards that want to censor our teachers. Inexcusable. And I'll repeat it again, because Nikki Haley basically is morally bankrupt. Okay? The Confederate flag is a symbol. I don't want to hear about your crappy tradition. I couldn't care less. Because I'm going to repeat it. The Confederate flag is to African Americans. The Confederate flag is to blacks. What the swastika is to Jews. That's it. So, jackass of the week goes to horrible person Nikki Haley. Bray on, you foul bitch. Bray on. And yes, I called her the B word. I don't care. She deserves it. No, actually she doesn't. To call Nikki Haley a foul bitch really isn't fair to all the other female dogs. Okay, she's worse than that. You know, she can't claim that she didn't know better. She can't claim that she's ignorant or uneducated because it's not the truth. She doesn't care. Doesn't care. Okay, so that is our show for today. I hope you learned something from it. Uh, Again, we're going to be talking more and more about this. And, you know, we joke a lot about the jackass of the week. This, you know, once again, um, the gall that it takes to mealy-mouth something as evil as slavery was and Jim Crow after it is beyond the pale. Okay, I can't say it often enough. And that includes the, the symbols. You know, I've heard people in my own neighborhood talk about how, well, you know, the Confederacy is part of a tradition. No, it's not. Not at all. It has nothing to do with tradition. It has to do with evil. Put bluntly, you know, if if you can make a if you can make excuses for the Confederacy and then claim you're a good Christian, well, you're neither good nor a Christian. Okay, and I, and I'm just going to end the show with this thought when it comes to the power of symbols, and they are powerful. That the Confederate flag is to blacks, what the swastika is to Jews. I pray for this nation. I, I hope that a lot of people find their their courage to stand up to these these horrible horrible vultures that are just you know inciting these flames. That's it. You know, there there's just and it's not enough to be to say you're not racist. We must be anti-racist. Anyway, uh, with that I say, good night and God bless us. We're going to need it.
but I don't want to bless Nikki Haley. Anyway, good night.